Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. In our science fiction science fact project, we've been asking you to vote for the questions from the frontiers of physics you'd most like to have answered on PLUS. The latest question to win this poll was, does infinity exist? And we went to speak to cosmologist and popular science author John Barrow to find out. And here's what he has to say. Well, this is a surprisingly ancient question and the, the famous and uh, clever distinction that was introduced to try and make sense of it was, was made first by Aristotle, who distinguished between two varieties of infinity, one which he called a potential infinity. And so this would be the type of infinity that would characterize an unending universe or characterizes the list of ordinary numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, forever. So these are uh, lists, or they are expanses, which have no end, they yeah. have no boundary. But you can never reach the end of the list of all numbers by uh, listing them, or by going on a spaceship in a flat space uh, and carrying on. So these are lists, they are volumes, they are areas, they are lengths, which have no bound. And these are what Aristotle called uh, potential infinities. And he was quite happy about them. He recognized them as existing, uh, and they didn't cre create any grand scandal in his way of thinking about the universe. But he distinguished them from what he called actual infinities. And actual infinities uh, he banned, uh, and he said that they couldn't exist. So actual infinities would be uh, something that you could measure, something local, like the density of something, or the brightness of a light, uh, or the temperature of something that was hot, becoming infinite. So this was something that you would encounter, or you could encounter, locally in the universe. And uh, this belief was bound up with his other belief that there couldn't be a perfect vacuum. Because if there could, he believed that you would be able to uh, push something and accelerate it and it would go to infinite speed because there was no resistance to it. Uh, so this was the ancient distinction between actual infinities and potential infinities. And for many thousands of years, um, Aristotle's philosophy was bound up with Western uh, Christian dogma and belief about the nature of the universe and his distinctions remained. People thought that there couldn't be actual infinities. Uh, in fact the only infinity was supposed to be uh, the divine, you know, God. But there could not be any created within the universe by anything that we did. Things changed in the world of mathematics at the end of the 19th century when uh, Cantor, Gerard Cantor in particular, uh, developed uh, a more subtle way of looking at mathematical infinities and distinguishing one type of infinity from another. So he recognized that there was a very simple, smallest type of infinity, which was that one, two, three, four, five uh, unending list. And he called that a countable infinity. And any other infinity which could be counted in this way, just by putting its members in one-to-one -one correspondence with the list one, two, three, four, five, and so on, was also called a countable infinity. This has got some funny consequences. Um, for example, the list of all the even numbers is also a countable infinity, 
intuitively you think there's only half as many even numbers um, as ordinary numbers. That would be true if the list was finite, but when the list becomes unending, uh, it's not true, because you can draw a line from uh, 1 to 2, and from 2 to 4, and from 3 to 6, and so on forever. And every even number will be joined to one and only one number in the other list. So there are as many numbers in one list as there are in the other. This was first noticed by Galileo, who thought it was so strange that it put him off thinking about infinite collections of things any further. So he thought there was just something paradoxical about it. But Cantor then went on to show that there are other types of infinity that are, in some sense, infinitely larger, which could not be put in one-to-one -one correspondence with the ordinary numbers. And that infinity is characterized, for example, by the list of all the numbers with unending decimal expansions, so what we call the real numbers. So they cannot be counted. So there's no recipe for listing them systematically. Whereas for the even numbers, we saw there was, and for all the rational numbers, all the rational fractions, there is. So if you have 2 over 3, 3 over 4, and so forth, the way you list those is you just add the numerator and the denominator. You add all the ones where it adds up to 2, then all the ones where it adds up to 3, and all the ones where it adds up to 4. And that is an infallible recipe for counting all the rational numbers, and you won't miss any. So they're countable as well even though in some intuitive sense there seem to be lots more of them. But if you count them in the right way, uh, there's just the same number. So this led people uh, to think again, really, about the status of infinities. Uh, Cantor was treating infinities not just as potential infinities, but as actual infinities mathematically. You could add them together. Uh, so a countable infinity plus another countable infinity was a countable infinity, and so on. Um, and there was a great uh, fuss in the world of mathematics whether this should be allowed. So some mathematicians thought that by allowing Cantor's transfinite quantities, as they were called, into mathematics, you were introducing some type of subtle contradiction somewhere. And... As you know, if you introduce a contradiction into a logical system, then eventually you'll be able to prove anything is true. So it, it would create the downfall of the whole system. So this development in pure mathematics, which was eventually accepted and uh, forms its own sub-branch of mathematics today, uh, led some theologians even and philosophers to rethink their ancient attitude about infinities. So they could see that if you're a theologian, uh, you didn't have to regard uh, the appearance of mathematical infinities as some sort of challenge to the notion that the divine is the only infinity, because there were quite different varieties of infinity. And, in fact, Cantor went on to show that finding this infinitely bigger set of the real numbers wasn't the end of the story, that you could find infinitely bigger sets still, and so on all the way upwards forever. And there was no biggest possible infinite collection of things. If uh, someone presented you with one, you could create a bigger one that wasn't in one-to-one -one correspondence with it just by finding the collection of all the possible subsets of that mm. infinite set. Mm. So this 
never-ending tower of infinities then had something that was just called absolute infinity, sort of unreachable summit of the tower. Um, but I think then people started to distinguish a little between different varieties of infinity. There were these mathematical infinities, but there's no reason why they should be the same as physical infinities. So in mathematics, if you, if you say something exists, what you mean is that uh, proposing it doesn't produce a logical contradiction. It doesn't mean that you can have one sitting on your desk or mm -hmm. there's one running around somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so unicorns uh, exist mathematically, but that doesn't mean that they exist mm -hmm. physically. And they exist because you can <coughs> conceive of them without introducing a contradiction. A logical contradiction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when mathematicians demonstrated that non-Euclidean geometries can exist, um, that's what they mean that um, you know, there's an axiomatic system uh, that's not self-contradictory. Uh, mm -hmm. So physical infinities became a different story, and then there was this more nebulous, sort of uh, transcendental, religious, philosophical infinities, you know, the sort of uh, um, uh, everything there is type of transcendental picture of uh, the universe that's maybe rather bigger than science or it's bigger than astronomy. Mm. So these three things are rather different. And you can find thinkers that believe in all of them or believe in none of them or just believe in some of them. So someone like Thomas Aquinas would have not believed in a mathematical infinity, he would have not believed in a physical infinity, but he would have believed in a transcendental mm. infinity. But how can you not believe in a mathematical infinity? Because as you say, like if you can define something that does not raise contradictions, then how can you... Well, before people had this mm. modern view, um, it's really a question of defining mathematics. So there are finitists even today, like Brouwer, in the early 20th century uh, and Kronecker in the 19th century who believed that um, you should allow logical systems only which don't permit the use of the excluded middle mm. and so this would mean that your mathematics was a bit like everything a computer could do mm. so you set down certain axioms and what is true is just what can be deduced from it by a finite sequence of logical steps. So you're not allowed to use a sort of argument for, from contradiction, um, proposing that something exists and then deriving a contradiction. So you have to construct everything. So this is like ordinary mathematics, but with some of the axioms missing. So it's a bit smaller. And there are still some mathem mathematical logicians who, for philosophical reasons, want to define mathematics in that way. There are others who are just interested in what you can prove if you define it mm. in that way. Um, and then there were mathematicians um, like Hilbert who were alarmed that if you did that, you would really reduce the scope of mathematics that he didn't think was profitable. But there were very famous mathematicians like Weil um, who did really uh, adopt this finitist view. Mm. But... Um, But physical infinities uh, have since, I think, in modern physics, really become rather separate from the study of infinities in mathematics. Mm -hmm. So what, are, what physical infinities <coughs> are there? What would be an example? Well, um, you know, a classic example is if you find solutions of Einstein's equations which describe 
expanding universes. Mm -hmm. So solutions of Einstein's equations are possible universes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you trace them backwards in time, uh, they appear to begin at a point in the finite past where the density was infinite. Mm -hmm. So our own Big Bang is, is like that? If we had a Big Bang in the, mm -hmm. in the past, uh, then there are solutions which suggest it had an infinite density in the past. If we look at the center of a black hole, there might be many black holes in our galaxy and nearby, suggest that if you fell in, perhaps you encounter an infinite density at the center. So these are unusual examples because they are actual infinities. Okay? We're happy to think of the universe being infinite in size, perhaps infinite in future age. These are potential infinities, and they don't seem very threatening. Mm. Um, but there are other places in ordinary physics where infinities sometimes arise. If you study aerodynamics or fluid mechanics, you might have an, a wave becoming very, very steep and nonlinear, and then forming a shock. And if you have rather simple equations describing the shockwave formation, some things may become infinite. But is that just the equations becoming infinite yeah. because they fa fail to <coughs> describe reality at that Yes, indeed. So, so when this happens, your first reaction is, oh, this is a failure of our model. Okay, and so what we do is that we add some of the friction of the air in, some of the viscosity, and instead of having an infinitely steep change in the velocity gradient, it becomes... Uh, finite, still very steep, but the viscosity just smooths over the infinity. And in most areas of science, if you see an infinity, this is what it suggests to people. Uh, in particle physics, there was a much longer standing, more subtle problem, that for many, many decades, the best working theory in particle physics, quantum electrodynamics, which is still the very best theory in the whole of science, you know, its predictions are more accurate than anything else that we know about the universe in any respect. Um, yet, the only way you could extract those calculations, those predictions, was to deal with a very awkward problem. That when you did a calculation about what you should observe in an experiment, you always seemed to get an infinite answer with an extra finite bit added on. If you then subtracted off the infinities, the finite part that you were left was the prediction you expected to see in the lab. And this always matched the experiment fantastically accurately. So this process of removing the infinities was called renormalization. And many famous physicists found this deeply unsatisfactory. Um, and it must just be a first version of a theory that could be improved. You know, we were not looking at it in the right way. And the great excitement about string theory in the 1980s, why it suddenly became investigated by huge numbers of physicists, was because for the first time, uh, particle physicists found a finite theory. So a theory that didn't have these infinities popping up. And the way it did it was to replace the traditional notion of the most basic entities in the theory from being points that move through space in time and so trace out lines in space-time to them being lines or little loops uh, which as they move trace out tubes and so 
you can see roughly if you have two particles moving through space which are points and they interact it's like two lines hit one another uh, and and form a sharp corner mm -hmm. at the place where they hit and then they will go out again uh, in another pair of lines from a sharp corner and it's that sharp corner in the picture that's the source of the infinities in the description but if you have two loops coming together it's rather like two legs of a pair of trousers mm. and then where the two more loops go out from the interaction it's like sewing another pair of trousers mm. onto the first pair of trousers mm. so it's, smooth. There so is it's no a smooth point. transition <clears throat> so there was a big difference in going from points to lines or loops so this was the reason string theory was so appealing that it it was the first finite theory of, of particle physics. The next and other type of infinity that we've just mentioned are the ones that you get in gravitation theory and in cosmology. And people sometimes have a different attitude to those. Particle physicists always thought that their infinities are just a sign that you hadn't got the best theory yet, mm. so you have to work harder. In cosmology there's a difference of opinion. So there's some people who think like that and who think that if we keep searching for a, a theory of quantum gravity, which might turn out to be a version of string theory, um, then that theory won't have the infinite density at the beginning of the universe, the infinite temperature uh, that we call the Big Bang. Um, but there are other people, Roger Penrose is one for example, who thinks that uh, that initial singularity at the beginning of the universe plays a very important role in the structure of physics. And you can see it's very special. It's not like the infinities in the shock waves or uh, in electrons hitting one another. If you're going to have something special in the universe, then the beginning of the universe is about as special mm. as it gets. What's odd about the infinities is that as the universe goes on, if it's a type of universe that's going to stop expanding, and contract back to another infinity in the future, a big crunch, then that big crunch could be dramatically non-simultaneous because some parts of the universe are denser than others where there are galaxies and so on. And the places that are denser will rush ahead and run into their future singularity before the low density reaches. All right. So you've got an <coughs> infinity happening Yes. time interval. And it may be possible, so if we were in a bit of the universe, or uh, others were in the far, far future, that had a greatly delayed future singularity, or even not going to have one at all, they could look back and see the end of the universe happening in other places. Mm. Um, that would be quite exciting. So, so then yeah. it would be actually possible to see infinity, something infinite actually yes, happening. Yes, you would, you would see evidence perhaps from a, uh, an infinite uh, well, in this case, space and time would come to an end at that place. So you would be looking back <laughs> at the edge of space-time. And what would you see? It's hard to say. Mm. Uh, it depends what would what would come out. Um, you see, the way our universe is set up at the moment, there's a very curious defence mechanism. Uh, <coughs> on a simple interpretation of things, there's an infinite density occurring at the centre of every black hole where material falls in and in and in and in. And it's just like that infinity at the end of the universe. But when that happens in the universe, a black hole creates this horizon around that phenomena, and light cannot escape. 
So we are insulated, we cannot see what goes on at those places where the density looks as though it's going to be infinite, and nor can it influence us. So these horizons that occur in general relativity protect us from the consequences of places where the density might be infinite, uh, and they stop us seeing what goes on mm. there. The only we have no idea. Well, there's one situation in we, where we might see such a thing. Stephen Hawking, long ago in 1975, uh, showed that black holes gradually evaporate mm -hmm. uh, their mass and energy very, very slowly. <clears throat> that there's a quantum tunneling process that particles can leave the black hole. And if a black hole is very small, about the mass of a mountain, uh, then and its size would be then pretty much just the size of a proton. Then at the final moments when that explosion occurs, uh, it will be like seeing a mini Big Bang occurring. And we can predict what we would see. Lots of gamma radiation with very high energies, 100 MeV gamma rays, uh, lots of relativistic electrons and positrons, which if the explosion occurred in our galaxy where there's a magnetic field, would spiral around and emit synchrotron radiation. Mm -hmm. So it's like a mini supernova explosion. That and can we see. create such a black hole for experiment just to see? What I think probably not. I mm. mean, people have wondered in the latest CERN experiments what would be the signals of making very, very small black holes. So they might be much, they would be much, much smaller mm. than that, and they would be very short lived. So and they would decay in effect in particular ways through the Hawking radiation. Yes, mm. it would be just the same phenomenon. So, uh, so in cosmology we have this uh, slightly different attitude towards infinities. And is that con a conventional view? So would most cosmologists <coughs> accept that these uh, infinities exist, these actual infinities, or is it? I think there's a fair there's a fair division. I think yeah. probably cosmologists who come from particle physics you know, who are interested in string cosmology and what string theory has to say about the beginning of the universe, would all tend to the view that singularities are not real, uh, that they're just an artefact. Um, I mean, even if they're an artefact and something happens to remove them, the density still becomes stupefyingly high mm. before anything can happen to, to remove them. So it's still a very bizarre situation where you would have densities 10 to the power 96 times mm. bigger than that of water. Um, for all practical purposes, that it's seems infinite. like an infinite yeah. value. Another question to ask about our universe is whether it is finite or infinite in extent. But as it turns out, the jury is still very much out on this one. It could be finite, it could be infinite. We mm. just don't know. We just don't. So we, we don't actually know whether our universe is spatially finite or infinite. No, I think we can never know. Um, because, you know, it could be finite, but with a size that's arbitrarily large. And people often think, oh, the universes that are infinite, uh, that expand forever, they have a negatively curved space. And so that if you could find evidence that our space was negatively curved and that we were expanding just a little bit uh, faster than the critical value, then the universe would have to be infinite. Whereas universes that expand from a big bang, head towards a big crunch, the simple ones with positively curved space have topology of a sphere, a uh, surface of a sphere. So 
Um, so knowing the topology of the universe is important to settle this issue. Mm. But why is a negatively curved universe <coughs> expanding at that rate that is slightly high? Why is that an indication that would have to be well, infinite? Well, <coughs> Einstein taught us that the geometry of space was determined by the density of material in it. Okay, so rather like a rubber trampoline, you put material on the trampoline, it deforms the curvature. And uh, to have uh, a negative space, you just need to have a relatively little material present deforming the space. And then it can be a negatively curved uh, space, and it can therefore continue to be stretched and expanded forever. But if you put too much material in the space, you can imagine a piece of rubber, it's sort of produces a huge depression and the top sort of closes up. Closes up. up. All right. So okay. a high-density universe mm. um, requires this spherical topology and will have a finite volume. A low-density universe, if it has a simple topology, will have an infinite size and volume. But if it has a more exotic topology, it could also have a finite volume. Mm. And... One of the mysteries about Einstein's equations is that he tells you how you can work out the geometry from the distribution of matter, but his equations have nothing to say about what the topology of the universe is. It's a quite separate issue. Mm. But maybe a deeper quantum theory of gravity might have something to say about topology. And what about the kind of obvious and, I guess, unanswerable question? So if it is a finite universe, what is beyond it? Oh, there's no beyond. You know, the universe is everything that there is. Um, uh, there's no something that it's sort of ploughing into, mm. like an explosion. And there's two ways to think about that. I mean, if the universe is infinite in every direction, it's actually easy to imagine, you know, that as every direction you go everywhere you look around you the universe looks on average pretty much the same and you're never going to reach an edge because it goes on forever and there's no anything else that oh. it's expanding into so the infinite case is fairly easy to imagine um, and wherever you stand and look around you it's as though the universe is expanding away from you at the center because every place is like the center but the finite case is slightly odd because you if we think of universes that just got two dimensions for the moment, it's easy to envisage. If we pick up a sheet of paper, a piece of A4 paper like I'm holding here, then it seems odd. You know, if, if something is finite like that, it always seems to have to have an edge. Um, and so how could it be that a finite universe doesn't have an edge? Mm. Well, that sheet of paper, though, is flat. And so that's true for something that's flat. But if we think of a two-dimensional surface that's curved like the surface of a sphere, then the area is finite. You mm. only need a finite amount of paint to paint it. But if you walk around on it, unlike mm. the flat of a piece of paper, you'll never encounter an edge. So when you have curved spaces, they can be finite but have no boundary, mm. no edge. And this spherical universe, if your sphere was the balloon and you started to inflate it, um, and you marked galaxies on the surface of that balloon, they would start to recede from one another as the balloon inflated. And wherever you stood on the surface of the balloon, you would see all those other galaxies expanding away from you as the rubber expanded. 
the real centre of the expansion, you see, is not on the surface mm. of the ball. Uh, it's in another dimension, in this case, the third dimension. So our three-dimensional universe, if it's finite and positively curved, behaves as though it's a three-dimensional curved surface of an imaginary four-dimensional ball. And the, but the fourth dimension is not there, does not exist, or we just It doesn't need to exist. It does, doesn't need to exist. So no. it's, yeah, so it could either be that it does exist and we just don't see it. I mean, there could or, be other space dimensions, which is yeah. another story of yeah, string yeah. theory, but yeah. forgetting those, um, it's just that it's possible to have a three-dimensional surface um, that behaves as though it's the surface of something four-dimensional, just as you can have a, a two-dimensional curved surface. It doesn't require the other three-dimensional object to, to exist. Be, yeah. So this was our roundup of Infinity brought to you by John Barrow. You can read the accompanying article and other articles on Infinity by going to the PLUS website at plus.maths.org infinity. And don't forget to vote for the next question you'd like to have answered on PLUS. Again, go to the PLUS website at plus.maths.org and then click on the Science Fiction Science Fact link in the right-hand margin. And that's it for this PLUS podcast. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.